As we continue in our study through the 1689, we'll be dealing with uh, this morning of divine providence, of divine providence. So the doctrine of providence in this chapter is closely related to uh, what we saw in chapter three of God's decree. And it sort of uh, expounds upon that and works that out. Um, there's a way to think about this that will be helpful, I think, for us to remember the distinction and the difference between God's decree and God's providence. God's decree is the sort of blueprint or plan, so to speak, and providence is the execution or carrying out of that eternal decree. The eternal decree is the blueprint and plan, and providence is the carrying out of that eternal decree. Um, <clears throat> and it's the carrying out of God's de de eternal decree, providence is, by uh, God guiding the actual course of history and all the actions of history through preservation and government. So when I say government, I mean securing the accomplishments of God's divine will. Providence is God securing the accomplishments of his divine will. The blueprint, the blueprint being carried out. So the decree takes place in eternity, but providence takes place in creation, time, and history. So that's maybe a helpful way to make a distinction between decree and providence. When it came to this doctrine of providence, the church took position against a few different things. So I'm gonna sort of walk through um, a little bit of church history as it dealt with the doctrine of divine providence because this does have a context. The confession itself has a context and this doctrine has been dealt with throughout church history. Um, so the church took a position in its understanding and its articulation of divine providence and it took a position against both the Epicurean idea that the world is governed by chance and the Stoic view that it's ruled by fate. So uh, the, the church has always positioned itself against these views. Uh, from the very start, theologians took the position that God preserves and governs the world, not fate, not chance. They didn't always have equal, absolute conceptions of the divine control of all things, and there were varying views and ideas of divine providence, but for the most part, the church sort of uh, stood side by side and articulated its doctrine, the doctrine of divine providence in that way. <clears throat> so historically in the church, Augustine, if you guys uh, know Augustine of Hippo, Augustine led the way in the development of this doctrine of divine providence over and against the doctrines of fate and chance, he stressed the fact that all things are preserved and governed by the sovereign, wise, and beneficent will of God. He didn't have reservations in connection, in connection with the providence of God, but maintained the, the control of God over the good and the evil in the world. So Augustine didn't just position himself and how he articulated this to say that God is sovereign over the good, but the bad and the evil, that's another story. We gotta sort of talk about that. He communicated and articulated this doctrine and said, no, God is sovereign over both the calamity and the well-being, the good and the bad, the evil and the good. And he did that by defending the reality of second causes. And he safeguards the holiness of God and upholds the responsibility of man. So we'll talk, we've talked a little bit about second causes and we'll talk a little more about it in this class. During the Middle Ages, 
there was very little controversy on the subject of divine providence. Not one single council expressed itself on this doctrine. And the dominant view was Augustine's. They would hold to Augustine's articulation of it, which subjected everything to the will of God. But there were other disagreeing views. A couple of those were Pelagianism, which Augustine fought against. And Pelagianism, as it articulated divine providence, limited providence to the natural life and excluded the ethical life. And semi-Pelagian moved in the same direction. Uh, Pelagianism essentially uh, believed that uh, by God's foresight of what man will choose, God elects him to salvation. So God uh, sort of looks uh, through time, uh, sees what that man will choose him, and thus in eternity past elects him based off of what man will choose. But in that formulation of salvation, God's divine will and providence terminate on the creature rather than the creator. And so it should be rejected. The, the control of the world was really taken out of the hands of God and given into the hands of man. Uh, Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of divine providence follows that of Augustine, so in the same line of thinking. <clears throat> And he holds that the will of God, as determined by his perfections, preserves and governs all things. The will of God, as determined by his perfections, preserves and governs all things. Um, at the same time, and around that same time, philosophers like, like Duns, Scotus, and um, nominalists as Beale and Oakham, William Oakham, if you uh, are familiar with that name, made everything dependent on the arbitrary will of God. In other words, the will of God is not fixed or absolute or eternal. It's actually subject to the random choice and personal impulse of the creature. And that idea became an introduction to this rule of chance. And so, again, historically, even up until this point, the church has positioned itself in its articulation of divine providence against um, ideas that God's providence is, one, limited to just um, uh, nature and not ethical, and two, his divine providence is only a providential and sovereignly um, governing the good but not the bad. What about the reformers? That sort of brings us to where we are in the 1689. The reformers on the whole subscribed to the Augustinian doctrine of divine providence, though they differed somewhat in the details. While Luther believed in general providence, he doesn't stress God's preservation and government of the world in general as Calvin does. So Sinians and Armenians, though not both to the same degree, limit the providence of God by stressing the independent power of man to initiate action and thus to control his life. Uh, so Sinians, which uh, basically uh, was a religion that believed um, that all things, well, it wasn't a religion, it was a philosophy that believed that all things concerning the universe and creation and God, a deity, need to be fully reconciled in the mind of the man. So uh, the eternal needs to be able to be grasped and comprehended by the um, finite. That's sort of Socinianism in a nutshell. Socinians and other heresies uh, reject the omniscience of God and Armenians take the sovereign will of God and subject it to the creature. The affirmations of the confession of the absolute sovereignty of God also positioned itself against deism. 
which represents God as withdrawing himself from the world um, and governing the world uh, by the laws he created solely. So um, the reformers have positioned themselves in their articulation of divine providence against deism as well. Deism would say that um, God sort of created the world and it's, it's sort of a wind-up clock. He winds it up, he creates it, he puts it in place, and then he steps back and the world just functions according to his natural laws. Um, when I was younger, I used to have this little pullback card. You guys remember those? You pull it back, click, 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 you let it go, and it goes off. That's uh, an idea, maybe that'll stick in your mind, of how uh, deism somewhat works. <laughs> they probably would disagree with that, but I think it's a good example. Um, he puts it into motion and it just operates according to his natural laws. <clears throat> um, the reformers also positioned themselves in their articulation of divine providence against pantheism, which identified God and the world. So pantheism sort of marries the two and destroys the distinction between creation and providence. Pantheism denies the reality of second causes. So as Augustine affirmed and defended the reality of second causes, both deism and pantheism deny it and destroy the doctrine of divine providence. Okay. Now, although you won't necessarily be able to open up your Bible and find the phrase divine providence, the idea of the conception is biblical. And, oh, sweet, the slide is back up. <clears throat> there it is. Is that going to come up? Yes. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'll just leave it like that because I don't want it to mess up. Okay, so the doctrine of divine providence is biblical. Let me have someone read Isaiah 46, 9 to 10 for us. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Thank you, Jeremy. So this is a very weighty uh, passage, uh, these <coughs> verses, as they speak to the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God, and divine sovereignty. My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The purpose is God's eternal decree. The accomplishing of his good pleasure is divine providence. God accomplishes his eternal plan through creation and divine providence. The word providence comes from the Latin providentia, which primarily means um, prescience or foresight. And I'll explain what that means. Throughout its theological development, the word providentia has come to mean the provision which God makes for the ends of his government and the preservation and government of all his creatures. Francis Turretin, a 16th century reformed scholastic theologian defined providence in this way. Foreknowledge, foreordination, and the efficacious administration of the things decreed. Most Reformed theologians would agree with that articulation of divine providence. Louis Burkhoff gives a similar definition. He says, it's the continued exercise of the divine energy through which the creator preserves all his creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. 
he articulates absolute sovereignty. So with that, let's jump into the confession, the 1689, and paragraph, uh, chapter five, paragraph one. <clears throat> so if you have it in front of you, uh, if you wouldn't mind reading, anyone who has it, uh, paragraph one for us of chapter five of Divine Providence. One from the greatest to the least, by his perfectly wise and holy providence, to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Thank you, Yvette. So these paragraphs, you'll notice, they are packed with <laughs> a lot of data about this doctrine of divine providence. So a lot of what's stated here in the first paragraph has already been covered in the class on God's decree and creation, which we, so we won't spend a lot of time um, sort of dealing with this and walking through it in that way. But I do want to take a look at the first point. Um, in the first sentence, about halfway through, where it states that God upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the least to the greatest. I want to look at a text that the confession cites here, and it's Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Would someone mind reading that for us? Thank you. The hairs on your head are all numbered. Imagine that. <laughs> Every single hair on your head is numbered. I might have less, but mine's are numbered too, just as yours are numbered. So what Jesus is communicating to his disciples is that God's care for you is all-inclusive, all-encompassing. He knows absolutely everything about you perfectly. He knows things about you that you don't even know about yourself. His providence is that extensive over all of life. And here the confession confirms again absolute knowledge of God over uh, not just creation in general, but down to specific details. <clears throat> Ephesians um, 1.11 says, Also we obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. He works all things after the counsel of his will. And every single thing that has happened to you happens because he is causing it to come to pass. Now, while we, we may not understand perfectly why all these things happen to us, that do happen to us, it ought to bring us great comfort to know that God is sovereignly orchestrating every event of our lives. Nothing is wasted. This means that God doesn't throw away, but he actually carries out. <clears throat> so this idea of, or this articulation of divine providence um, is really, again, helpful for 
not just the major events and the, the things that shake us, but also the small things. Um, how we'll get to work, like I mentioned before, the flat tire that happens to us. God's sovereign providence is all encompassing. And at times we do step back and we look at our lives and we wonder, Lord, why this? Why did this happen in this way? In this past week or this past month, I'm sure many of you, including myself, you look at life and you look at a circumstance and you say, why, Lord, I don't see how this even is necessary. Why did this happen in this way? But again, remembering God's divine providence informs us and helps us to think biblically about this. God is bringing to pass all that he has ordained from the greatest to the least. This paragraph also confirms that God's will is free, that his will is free. So what does that mean? That means that God's, de that, that God's decrees are in himself and he decrees in himself what happens outside of himself. Again, God's decree, his will is free. That means that God decrees in himself what happens, what comes to pass outside of himself. God's free and unchangeable counsel is never frustrated by the actions of his creatures. A.A. Hodges says, his providential control is in all respects the consistent execution of his eternal, immutable, and sovereign purpose. The consistent execution of his eternal, immutable, and sovereign purpose. <clears throat> That's what it means to be God. Okay, let's jump down to paragraph two. Let me have someone read paragraph two for us. Okay, so you see this articulation here of first causes and second causes, or the first cause and second cause, which I mentioned earlier, Augustine would articulate in his understanding and articulation of divine providence. So the first sentence of this second paragraph is simply restating what has already been said in the first paragraph. But the second sentence of this paragraph is important to us and how we understand how God works in the world. So God has ordained all things that would come to pass, and he, and he uses secondary causes to bring them to pass. For example, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Let me have someone read that for us, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you, Scott. <clears throat> so God's eternal decree of the substitutionary atonement of Christ took place through God's divine providence of second causes. What's that? The men who crucified him. Another example of this is found in 1 Kings, which I'll go ahead and just read for you. 
So 1 Kings 22, uh, 28, and then 34 to 35. This is a passage that some of you may be familiar with. 1 Kings 22, I'm going to read verse 28, and then I'll read verse 34 to 35. 1 Kings 22, 28. It says, Micaiah said, If you indeed return safely to the Lord, he has not spoken by me. And he said, listen to all your people. So here, Micaiah is um, really predicting the defeat of the king of Israel in battle. And if you jump down to verse 34 and 35, it says, so in the context of this battle, which Micaiah has already uh, sort of predicted, it says, now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint and the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. Verse 35, the battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans and died in the evening. And the blood from the womb ran into the bottom of his chariot. So the Lord tells Micaiah to speak these words to the king of Israel. You, will, you, you, you won't return. You're going to die if you go to battle. And the king goes to battle and he dies. He's defeated. And the Lord does this through the second cause of the arrow piercing in a very particular place in his armor. So God has eternally decreed something, the blueprint and plan, but he has carried out that through the providence in here, second causes. <clears throat> so God works through means in order to accomplish his purpose. Historically, many have understood the relationship between the eternal decree of God, divine providence, and second causes in a way that misrepresents God and divine providence. They have misunderstood the relationship between those three, eternal decree, divine providence, and second causes. The way Reformed theologians have understood this is denying the position, again, of the Socinians, who would hold to an open theism, and Arminians who maintain that God's divine providence in creation is only a general or indifferent cooperation, so that the second, so that the second cause, that it's the second cause, I'm sorry, that directs the action of the particular end. So they place the authority on the second cause rather than on God's divine providence in the first cause, his eternal decree. While divine providence stimulates the second cause, they would say, it leaves this to determine its own particular kind and mode of action. But if this were the situation, it would be in the power of man to frustrate the plan of God. And the first cause would become subject to the second. Does that make sense? Right? So the second cause becomes sovereign, and the first cause, God's eternal decree, is subjected to the second cause. You see why that has to be rejected. Man would be in control and there would be no divine providence. When it comes to divine providence, the confession covers all of creation, everything and everyone. And then the confession adds in the same paragraph, yet by the same providence, God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes. By or through providence, God himself orders the way 
his decrees fall out or are carried out. And they usually fall out or are carried out according to the nature of second causes. And we've mentioned in the past, a second cause refers uh, to the way or means by which God's decree is fulfilled. So I have a slide here that may be helpful. If we think about God's decrees, remember I said earlier, his decrees are the blueprint or the plan. The execution of those decrees takes place through God's divine providence. But some would, uh, they don't take it far enough even in their articulation and understanding of this because even in that, some things are left to chance. But if we articulate that God's divine providence is all-encompassing from the greatest to the least, as the confession affirms, which we should agree with, the first cause, God's decrees, they are executed or carried out through his divine providence, and his divine providence orders the second causes. So everything is determined and carried out from God, the first cause, the omnipotent, omniscient one. Okay, so again, the articulation here is that everything, all things are covered under God's, uh, are carried out, the carrying, the execution of God's decree, which takes place under his divine providence. So there's no room for chance here. This chart, although it's a chart, it should be encouraging. Uh, nothing is outside of God's divine providence, not the good and not the evil, not the calamity and not the well-being. All are under God's divine providence. So a few things that I think understanding this rightly will keep us from. The first is a miserable anxiety and complaining about life. Everything is under the control of the living God. If you believe that, it will keep you from an anxiety and complaining which will make your life miserable. Understanding this influences your joy in life. I think all of us can attest to that. We become anxious about things and we simply forget God. We forget that he's sovereign, we forget his divine providence, and we become very um, self-centered um, and everything that that word articulates. The universe becomes fixed and contingent upon us and we forget that God is sovereign and we become miserable. The world does tell us to look inside of ourselves, look at yourself, look in yourself to find joy and happiness and peace. But if you do that, you will eventually implode and crumble in on yourself because the universe is not contingent upon you. Uh, the universe does not revolve around you. Um, God is the sovereign, omnipotent one, and so we have to turn our eyes to him. When we fail to recognize that God is working all things together perfectly, even evil things, it can cause great anxiety in our lives and cause our faith to waver and weaken. But you know what's really encouraging? even in times of pain and suffering, to be able to rest on the foundation of God's sovereignty. Again, this isn't merely abstract theology. It informs how you think about life. 
um, and it informs your soul as it's being watered by the word and encouraged by this aspect of God's divine providence. The second thing this will keep us from is a paralyzing fatalism. Many people, even Christians, when they learn about God's providence and his control over all things, ask this question, what difference does the use of means make? If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Well, the use of means makes all the difference in the world because the Bible clearly teaches that God uses means to bring about all which he has ordained. He ordained the ends and he ordained the means. Lastly, it keeps us from an irresponsible presumption. We can't assume that we will see the results of the outcome of something without using the means. So we can't say, and we shouldn't say, we're reformed. Um, we understand soteriolo soteriology um, through a Calvinistic articulation of it. We're reformed. Um, we believe that God elects, and therefore we don't need to evangelize, or we shouldn't pray. Um, all those, th that understanding would work against how we understand divine providence and second causes or the means. We also shouldn't expect that God will keep us safe without taking wise precautions. Don't walk out in the rain without an umbrella and expect God to miraculously keep you from getting wet. You will get wet. Uh, don't be unwise in that way. The ordinary means to salvation is the faithful proclamation of the gospel, which brings forth faith and repentance in the heart of God's elect. The ordinary means of being able to make money to provide for yourself and your family is going out and getting a job. Don't assume that God's normal means of provision for you is something miraculous. At times in God's special providence, he does miraculous things but we can, that we can clearly see in scripture but God ordinarily, ordinarily uses means to bring about what he decrees. Genesis 8:22 says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. In other words, the world will continue to operate as the Lord upholds it through his ordinary means while he accomplishes or executes his eternal decree. <clears throat> Things will continue to operate as the Lord has determined it will through his ordinary means. Okay? All right, so let's jump down to paragraph three here. Let me have someone read that for us. In his ordinary providence, God makes use of means through his free work to work apart, sorry, through, though, sorry, though he is free to work apart from them, beyond them and contrary to them at his pleasure. Okay, thank you, Chris. So the key word in the first part of this sentence is the word ordinary. But ordinarily works through means, but God ordinarily works through means to bring about all that he has ordained. However, is not all, it, he is not at all constrained to or restrained by these means. He may at any time work outside, above, or against them at his good pleasure. So let's look at some examples of this. Um, Romans 4, do I have a PowerPoint for that? Maybe not. Romans 4, 12, 19 to, to 21. 
I'll just read it for you since I don't have the PowerPoint here. Romans 4, 19 to 21. It says, without becoming weak in the faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, speaking of Abraham, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in believing, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. What's this referring to? Abraham and Sarah um, conceiving and bearing a child, being well past um, the ordinary age of being able to conceive. So God working outside above those ordinary means that he uses to accomplish his works. So this paragraph is speaking about God's ability to perform miracles. A distinction is usually made between providentia ordinaria ordinary providence and providentia extraordinaria, extraordinary providence. And the former ordinary providence, God works through second causes in accordance with the laws of nature. But in the latter extraordinary providence, he works immediately or without the mediation of second causes in their ordinary operation. Some regard miracles as impossible because they involve a violation of the law of nature. But that's a mistake. Why? The so-called laws of nature simply represent God's usual method of working. And the fact that God generally works according to a definite order does not mean he cannot operate or depart from that order. God is not a slave to the means which he has ordained. And it's presumptuous for us to expect that God will spare us the fruit of our irresponsibility and the things we mentioned earlier, but nonetheless, he is not locked into those means. In other words, it's irresponsible for us to think that God will miraculously provide a hot plate of food on our porch every night if we don't get up and work. We cannot neglect God's ordinary means with the expectation of his extraordinary means as a consistent and regular way in which God uh, carries out his divine providence. <clears throat> okay, let's jump down to paragraph four. Let me have someone read paragraph four for us. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in his providence that his sovereign plan includes even the first fall and every other sinful action both of angels and humans. God's providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. Through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfectly holy purposes. Yet he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arises only from the creatures and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous, he can neither originate nor approve of sin. Okay, thank you, Jeremy. <clears throat> so this is another paragraph that's packed with data on this um, articulation of divine providence. And this paragraph does present some difficulties. As you read through it, you might be taken aback by how it articulates 
God's divine sovereignty over the sinful actions of men and angels. If you remember, the confession in paragraph one said, God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things. A lot of paragraph one is restated here, but here it's applied even to the fall and to all sinful actions of men and angels. Historically, Pelagians, semi-Pelagians, the Roman Catholic Church, and Arminians raise a serious objection to this doctrine of providence. They would say that a previous concurrence or the divine will carried out through providence, which is not just general, but predetermines man's specific actions, makes God the responsible author of sin. Reformed theologians are aware of this difficulty, but they don't feel free to sidestep it by denying God's absolute sovereign control over the free actions of his moral creatures, since this is clearly taught in scripture. <clears throat> Genesis 50, 19 to 20 says, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for I am, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about his present result, to preserve many people alive. <clears throat> So God's determinate counsel extends even over such sinful actions. Either God is sovereign in all things, including the fall and the sinful actions of angels and men, or he's not sovereign at all. The difficulty does not mean that we can sidestep it. We should take it head on and work through how the Bible, and even as we look at the confession, how church history has articulated God's divine providence in this area. Some of you are probably familiar with the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was a series of meetings, uh, basically the Roman Catholic Church's response to the Protestant Reformation. One of the questions that were discussed between the reformers and the Church of Rome was essentially this. What is the nature of the agency or means which God exerts in regards to the sinful actions of his responsible creatures. And whether the agency which the reformers usually ascribe to him gave ground for the allegation that made God the author of sin. In other words, they said, you're saying that God is absolutely sovereign over the good and the evil does that not mean that God is the author of sin? And they addressed this and articulated or tried to articulate this in a way that they felt was consistent with scripture. <clears throat> so let's look at uh, a passage that the confession brings out here, that it cites here, uh, 2 Samuel 21, 1 and 1 Chronicles 21, 1. I'm sorry, 24, 1 and 21, 1. Now, this is probably one of the most difficult passages um, in Scripture, these two together, that, that, that is in Scripture, because it does present us with a, a difficulty here. Second uh, Samuel uh, 24, 1 says, Now the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now, David numbering... Um, or having a consensus counting Israel and Judah was sinful. Um, if you look back at Exodus, 
the counting or the numbering of the people was something that was preserved for God alone. Uh, only God could do that. And so for someone to go and number or count the people in the camp or, or Judah is something sinful. It was really articulating that God is in control. God is sovereignly in control of his people, not you. Trust me. All right, so that's Second uh, Samuel 24.1. First Chronicles 21.1 says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. God's anger burned, and he incited, moved David against them to number Israel. First Chronicles 21, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So <clears throat> this numbering of Israel was undoubtedly a sinful action of David's done by him freely and spontaneously without any compulsion in the indulgence of his sinful state of mind or motive. The same for any other sinful action. William Cunningham walks through how the reformers thought about this and questioned to a response to Rome or in their response to Rome. He says, this action of David in which he was doing was in, in which he was doing what God had forbidden, transgressing God's law and incurring guilt and the divine displeasure is expressly ascribed in scripture also to God and to Satan in terms which in all fair construction, if we, let, if we let the scripture say what the scripture says, implies that Satan had some share, exerted some efficiency in bringing it about, and that God also contributed in some sense and to some extent to bring it about, intending to employ it as a means of executing his just and righteous purpose of designing a punishment for Israel um, for their sins. In other words, he's saying, scripture seems to be telling us clearly here that Satan did something in this action, that David was responsible in this action, and that God did something in this as well. He continues, we are constrained to admit that in some sense, God willed that David should number the people, and accordingly did something or exerted some efficiency in order to bring about this result. So he's trying to walk through and articulate how the reformers walk through this difficulty. We are bound indeed to believe, uh, for so the word of God teaches, that the sinfulness of the action proceeded only from the creature, that is, from Satan and David. Satan incurring guilt by what he did in the matter of provoking David to number Israel, but and not in any way diminishing in the least David's guilt in yielding to the temptation, and that God was not the author or approval of what was sinful in the action. But, he says, we are also bound to believe to the fair impression of what Scripture says, if we read Scripture as it is here, that in regard to the action itself, which was sinful and, and produced and performed by Satan and David, God did more than merely permit or abstain from interfering to prevent it. And that in some sense and in some manner, he did do something in the way of its being brought about. Now he says, from the difficulty 
of conceiving and explaining how God could have moved David to say, go number Israel and Judah, while yet the sinfulness of that action was David's only, not God's. He says, in trying to defend God and saying this, we might, we might be tempted to make a violent effort to explain away the statement where they're not else in scripture to lead us to ascribe to God anything more in regard to man's sinful actions than mere permission. In other words, he's saying when we read something like this and uh, in our attempt to uphold God's holiness and defend his character, we could try and explain the way the very scripture through which God speaks. But scripture doesn't let us. We have to allow scripture to speak to this um, acknowledge the difficulty, but also acknowledge the mystery that is here. Because there is a difficulty and there is mystery. The reformers usually confine themselves to the expression which scripture itself uses. Being aware that on a subject so difficult and mysterious, it was appropriate to abstain from merely human speculations and to take care to assert nothing about God's hidden and unseen agency but what he himself had clearly warranted. Continuing in this paragraph, it also says, in, in, in the confession here, it also says, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. Through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfectly holy purposes. His wisdom and power characterize the way he goes about limiting, arranging, and governing. This permission varies in degrees according to God's purposes. And the permission God gives is not to be understood as permission for the creature to sin. Providence gives, I'm sorry, and, and his permission the, the permission God gives is not to be understood as permission for the creature to sin without culpability or blame. Rather, it refers to God's purpose allowing the creature to sin. Providence gives permission for sinful actions, but places limits on them. It gives permission for sinful actions, but places limits on them. The permission of sin is arranged, meaning it has it has been structured and directed according to the actions of sinful men and angels. Satan had to get permission before he could touch Job. He was given certain bounds he could not cross. This applies to men and angels. A.A. A. Hodge affirms, God does not only permit sinful, God not only permits sinful actions, but he directs, controls them, to the determination of his own purposes. This means that Satan is not let loose to do whatever he desires. Even sinful actions in the world are under God's divine providence ordered through second causes. It's encouraging to know that sinful actions of and evil circumstances, any sinful action or evil circumstances that happen to us or um, happen against us are not outside of God's sovereign, watchful, and omnipotent hand. All sin, even sin, is under God's providential reign and rule. There is no way to 
hold to absolute divine providence if we do not hold to it across the board. If God is only sovereign over certain things, then we do not hold to divine providence and sovereignty. God cannot only be God over certain things, here, there, here, skips that and there, but in order for him to be God, he has to be sovereign over all things. We're not saying that a difficulty isn't presented here concerning sinful actions, but we're saying that we want to continue to articulate faithfully God's divine sovereignty as the reformers did and as our confession does. Paragraph four ends by saying, yet he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their actions arise only from the creature and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous, he can neither originate nor approve sin. And God's providence over sin, the sinfulness proceeds only from the creature. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. If we also look at John, uh, James 1, <clears throat> 13 to 17, a familiar passage. James 1, 13 to 17 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God's providence has no limits, and so all things happen exactly as he has ordained, and yet without sin on God's part. We have to maintain that. God ordains sin for his own holy purposes. Again, Genesis 50, 20. Uh, Joseph, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Louis Burkhoff writes, Louis Burkhoff writes, the vast majority of Reformed theologians maintain the difficulty and the mystery of the question of divine providence and sinful actions and seek the solution of this by distinguishing between material and forma of the sinful actions and by ascribing the, lateral, the, the latter forma exclusively to man. In other words, the divine providence energizes man and determines him efficaciously to the specific act, but it is man who gives the act its formal quality and who is therefore responsible for its sinful character. Thomas Watson said it in this way, God, God permitted their sin, which he never would if he could not bring good of it. God's ends are holy. God remains holy even and the means he uses to accomplish those ends. So we have to maintain the two, the sovereignty of God, um, God's divine providence, God's holy character, the sinfulness of man, and recognize that there is mystery there, there's mystery in the difficulty. Now, 
again, church history, as we look at church history from Augustine up through the reformers, have wrestled with this, but they have done just that. They've wrestled with it. And I think they have articulated um, good ways that can help us to better understand the difficulty, though not exhausting um, our understanding of it because we can't. <clears throat> okay, where am I? Two minutes. All right, I'm just going to continue moving through it, and then we'll stop where we're able to stop. Okay, let's read paragraph chapter five. We have someone read that for us. Thank you. So look at, do I have it here? <clears throat> Let's look at Luke 22, 31 to 34, and John 21, 15 to 17. Luke 22, 31 to 34, and then John 21, 15 to 17. We'll probably end on this paragraph. I'm sorry, Luke, Luke 22, 20, Luke 22, 31 to 34. <clears throat> Verse 31 says, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when, when once you have been turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will crow today. The, the, the rooster, I'm sorry, will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And then John 21. sort of the uh, other side of this story. John 21, 15 to 17. On 17, yes. Thank you. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Thank you. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. What happens in between what we read in Luke 22 and what we read in John 21? Peter denies the Lord three times, denies the Lord before um, a, a slave girl. 
and he fears and he um, uh, runs away in, in shame and guilt. And this is after Peter's profession, uh, Lord, I am ready to go with you to death. I am here. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. And I think this is something that all of us can relate to. Um, at times we find ourselves zealous um, and zealous for the cause of Christ, zealous for our Lord, zealous for his word and his gospel. Um, and at other times we find ourselves crumbling under the same sin that we've crumbled under a hundred times before. And this is, this is the, the, the experience, the human experience of the Christian. You sin against God, sometimes in ways you never thought you would, and you feel like you hate yourself. And you say, I love God, why do I do these things? And sometimes the Lord is using this in your life, or I should say, the Lord is constantly and continually using this in your life to cause you to depend on him even more. And we see this also in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 9. Well, Paul, uh, speaking of those things which he has, has gone through, his tribulations and his trials and how the Lord is using this to build him up that he may be able to encourage the brothers. And the last sentence there sums up, the last sentence in this paragraph sums up the reasoning for this and that it is so that whatever happens to any of his elect is by his appointment for their glory, for, sorry, for his glory and for their good. So like I mentioned before, as we understand and articulate God's divine providence, it's over the good and the evil, it's over calamity and well-being, and even our own lives as we go through different trials and seasons, we have to look at these things and look at them through the lens of God is sovereign. Amen. God is divinely appointed these things for his glory and for my good. Everything. If we cannot um, hold and articulate that God is sovereign over everything and articulate his divine providence over everything, then we do not believe that God is absolutely sovereign. And so the confession affirm, affirms this, which I think we should believe. And as I walk through church history, you see this same articulation. And so, um, again, God's divine providence is the carrying out the execution of God's eternal decrees. They're carried out or executed through his divine providence and his divine providence orders even second causes. And as even we look at the difficulty, we recognize the difficulty, but we still articulate it as the scripture calls us to. Okay.